Good morning, Redeemer. So, uh, my name is Barry Pett, and I have the privilege of serving here as the, as the care and discipleship pastor. But um, on days like today, I have to also take a little point to say what I really am proud of is that I'm the dad of the drummer girl. <laughs> They'll kind of be like, be careful. It doesn't happen always, but in the weeks when it works out that, that, that she's playing drums the same week I'm preaching, it's like, just buckle up because I'm ready to go. You know, <laughs> whatever that's worth. Um, so uh, today, I do have the, have the privilege of uh, filling in for Pastor Jeff as he's away with his family for a few days. So uh, we, man, we've got a lot to cover today. So turn your Bibles to Matthew 19. Um, as we're going to continue our study of the book of Matthew. Throughout this book that we have seen so far that Jesus repeatedly does two things. He proclaims the kingdom of heaven and he describes what the kingdom looks like both here on earth and eternally in heaven. So I think what you're gonna see today as we, as we look at this text, we're gonna see two more distinct portraits of this kingdom and they both involve citizenship. The first involves requirements for citizenship, and the second is a proper perspective of kingdom citizens. So as is our custom, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we're, we're in Matthew 19, and we're going to be, begin reading in verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 20, verse 16. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 13. Then children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. And then just then someone came up to him and asked, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I have kept all of these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go, sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when they heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Jesus, uh, then Peter responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, 
When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into the vineyard for the day. And when he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. And then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired, about five came, they each received one denarius. And when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. And when they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, these last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as you. Don't I have the right to do, to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Pray with me. Father, God, would you, would you open our eyes today to see the all-important truths that you have powerfully portrayed for us in this text today. God, show us each where we fit into this story. God, would you soften our hearts to respond rightly to what your word reveals. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John Piper once said, no man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Self-exaltation and Christ's exaltation can't go together. Similarly, 19th century African writer and pastor Andrew Murray is quoted as saying this, in heaven and on earth, pride or self-exaltation is the very gateway to hell. So if, if, if self-exaltation is the gateway to hell, then we can assume that conversely it can be concluded that the gateway to heaven is humility and meekness. And these parallel truths are very near the heart of our text today as Jesus uses these last days of his earthly ministry to help his disciples understand the kingdom of God. In this text, we see three snapshots of the kingdom of God that display 
the eternal rewards of Christ's exaltation as well as the eternal consequences of self-exaltation. The first snapshot we see is in, is in verse 13 through 15, which mirrors the beginning of chapter 18 that Jeff taught on a couple of weeks ago, where in chapter 18, verse two, Jesus said, truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in the same way, in verse 14 of our text today, Jesus also then tells his disciples, says, leave the children alone. Don't try to keep them from coming to me. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So we have to ask ourselves, what is, what is this trait of children that we are called to mimic in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think we, we, saw the, we see the answer in verse 14 of chapter 18 that we, we studied, again, a couple weeks ago, where he says, whoever humbles himself like this child. That's the trait you have to have. You see, children by nature are, are, are helpless and defenseless. They're small, weak. We had the blessing of keeping one of our, 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 our one-year-old grandchildren last night. What a joy but you don't take your eye off them for a second, right? Um, th they need our help. They need our provision. They need our supervision. And they're okay with that. <laughs> I mean, how many of your kids last night stayed up worrying about how the family was gonna get its pills paid this month? Or how you're gonna buy groceries? Well, no. For most kids, the biggest worry is how they're gonna get to the next level of their favorite video game, right? Why? Because they're kids and they accept their need for supervision and provision and they wholly trust their parents to care for them. And Jesus re repeatedly reminds us that the same kind of humility and self-awareness is required if you one day want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this truth is vividly played out in the story of the rich young ruler that we read about in chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. I think the fact that this story is, in, is told in three of the gospels testifies to its importance. I like Mark's gospel is a little more descriptive at the very beginning because it says, a man ran up, kneeled down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you see the fact that, that he ran to Jesus and he knelt before him. It demonstrates a respect he had to have for him. When you look at the story as whole, though, it becomes clear that, that he was very likely looking far more for confirmation than he was for help. You see, this young guy was rich, he was young, and he certainly didn't lack for self-confidence, did he? I have to imagine that he saw himself as, as having life by the horns. Luke is the gospel that informs us that he was a ruler in addition to being young and rich. This guy had it all in this life. And he is looking to Jesus to affirm that he would also be large in charge in the next life as well. And what I love is that the way Jesus speaks to him is nothing short of masterful. 
he begins the unraveling of his, of his self-exaltation by answering his question with a question. When he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I suspect that his response here had less to do with Jesus subtly declaring his deity and it probably had a lot more with him challenging the young man's self-righteousness by saying no one is good except God. He was in essence saying, son, you may be rich and you may be young and powerful, but you're not good. And before he can challenge this claim or, or even defend himself, Jesus continues to surgically expose his self-deception of goodness. In Mark's account, he plays into this bravado by saying, you know the commandments. In other words, you're a smart guy. If you want to be perfect, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now here again, we see this bravado when he answers which ones? <laughs> I don't have any doubt that this was actually a very rhetorical question. Because I can't imagine that his response would be any different whether Jesus listed one or all ten. He wasn't saying, well, I hope, he, I, hope I, I, got, I got five. No. You know why? Because he believed he obeyed all of them. And his response confirms that he was looking for affirmation, not help. I think it's also important to note here that this is not an irreligious man. He came to Jesus. He knelt before him. He respected Jesus' wisdom. And as we'll see, he, he, seemed to, he seemed to know and follow the commandments. At least he says he tried to. But you see, what we're about to find out is that there is a huge difference between being a believer and being a follower. And Jesus is about to make this painfully clear to this young man. Now many of you know that the Ten Commandments is, is broken into two broad categories. You've got the first four commandments that deal specifically with man's relationship with God. And then the other six, the rest of them, address man's relationship with each other. So which ones does Jesus name? Well, he picks the horizontal human relationship ones. I think this may be because this young man clearly saw himself as good. He was probably well-liked. He was esteemed. He was a respected person. Of course, he's going to agree to these. But you know what's interesting is that Jesus not only just names just a few of the commandments, but he doesn't list them in numeric order, but rather in an order that I don't know, it may seem like it's perceived to, to be in order of like worst to least. Look at 18. What does he say? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I have to wonder if Jesus wasn't just toying with him a little by mixing in love your neighbor as yourself. Because... As those of you who work in the children's area, and, and you, uh, you, you probably already have the perfect tense swimming through your brain, right? Uh, if you don't know what that means, the kids, the song they sing in the kids' area, 
ask a children's worker or Google it. It's fun. Um, but if you do that, if you know the Ten Commandments, you know that this isn't one of them. One of the Ten Commandments isn't love your neighbors yourself. And if this guy was as spiritually astute as he perceived himself to be, he would have likely pointed out Jesus' intentional error. But rather, he completely takes the cheese by responding, I have kept all of these from my youth. What do I still lack? That's some self-confidence, isn't it? Especially saying it to Jesus. He's like, hey, look, I've been nailing all of these since I was a kid. Got them, check. Anything else? And I love Mark's account of what happened next. In Mark 10, 21, it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Wow. If, if you want to see just what a gracious and merciful Savior we serve, just meditate on that response. I mean, let's face it, Jesus could have called him a liar or an idiot, which would have led to him having a, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Kind of an argument, right? Because we all know he didn't keep the commandments. And he could have have humiliated him in front of the crowd by beginning to list in great detail the myriad of ways that he had, in fact, broken every one of the commandments. But he didn't do that. Instead, he looked at him and he loved him. It reminds me in Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Jesus grieved for the condition of this man's heart. His heart for this man is the same as the concern that we see for the Leo. The Laodicean, I got tongue tied there. The Laodicean church that we read about in Revelation 3, where, he said, where Jesus says to this church, He says, For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So instead of arguing with him or humiliating him, He simply forced him to look at himself in a figurative mirror where he would have no choice but to acknowledge that his life was defined by self-exaltation rather than Christ-exaltation. Look at the response of Jesus in 21 and 22. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go, sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, both Mark and Luke's account says that he told the man, you still lack one thing. In other words, if you really believe that you can earn salvation through your own virtue and works and perfection, well, there's, there's, there's one more test. I know you think you've observed all the commandments since you were a kid, so, so let me test you with the very first one which is the one that all the others depend on. You shall have no other gods before me. No more just saying you keep the commandments. Let's find out. As the kid's song is, number one, 
We've just begun. God must be first in your life. If you really do keep the commandments, then you will gladly give up your wealth and status and with the dependence of a child, you will come and follow me. And in that one unexpected moment, in a blink of an eye, this young man went from feeling that he was on top of the world and was a future star in heaven to, what does it say, going away grieving because he had many possessions. You see, he believed the same lies that we fall for today. And that is that we are good by nature. That our good deeds far outweigh our bad deeds. And that our resumes of virtue are sufficient to win God's approval. God exists for our pleasure, not us for his. But the same truths remain. And that is that no one except God is good and he will not share his throne with anyone. You come to him with the helplessness and dependence of a child or you can't come at all. The very first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you acknowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt and are willing to submit your life, your resources, and your ambitions to exalting God rather than yourself, then you have no place in God's kingdom because in heaven, there's only one that will be worshiped and exalted. Amen? Now keep in mind that this all happened in the midst of a crowd. And I've got to imagine it got real quiet about now, didn't it? So Jesus turns his attention to those around him and he uses this as a teaching moment. In verse 23, we read this. He says, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? Now, <clears throat> to appreciate what's going on here, you have to understand that, that wealth in this culture was perceived to be a sign of blessing and favor from God. They also believed that the rich were more favored because they could pay money to remove their sin. There's one Jewish writing from that time that said it like this. It said, it is good to do alms. Alms are giving. It's good to do alms rather than treasure up gold for alms deliver from death and they purge away every sin. Now, clearly not great theology, but, but, but this was how the rich were perceived. So you can understand why suddenly their stomachs were starting to get a little queasy. They just watched a guy who seemed to have God's greatest approval walk away grieving at the reality that he didn't have God's approval at all. And in case the people around him clearly didn't get the message, he took away any possible confusion by saying, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard exactly? Well, so hard 
it would be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle. In other words, he's saying it's not just hard, it's impossible. It's impossible. And that, of course, explains the astonishment of his disciples. For they, if they believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and approval, yet it was impossible for rich people to get into heaven. Uh-oh. Well, that means it's impossible for everyone. And of course, that's exactly what he was saying. The point here is that not that you can't get into heaven if your bank account exceeds a certain amount. The point is, it's not about your bank account at all. It's about your heart. The problem with wealth is that it can be harder for you to realize your need for God when you seem self-sufficient and you're doing pretty well on your own. Of course, the other problem with material wealth is that it, if, if you find yourself with financial superiority, it often leads to a sense of moral superiority. It's a lot harder to see yourself as poor in spirit when you are materially wealthy, isn't it? You know, I find that sometimes people tend to make fun of jailhouse religion as being superficial. But I can tell you as a guy who is, who is actively involved in prison ministry, I can honestly say that some of the godliest men I know live behind bars and wear white. You see, I think the blessing of prison is that it strips away any notion of superiority and self-sufficiency. It's hard to be self-exalting in prison. Your dignity and wealth are completely taken away and this state is fertile ground to begin to see your need for God and to come to him with the humility and dependence of a child. You see, the young men in our, in our text couldn't attain what he came to seek or, or, or couldn't get, get the affirmation that he possessed eternal life. Why? Because he couldn't get past step one of acknowledging his sin. And if you can't accept that you have a sin problem, then there's no way that you would ever be willing to walk away from your material possessions to follow a savior that you don't have any need of. Nor will he ever be the greatest treasure in your life. Of course, the Bible doesn't stutter here. No one is righteous. Not even one. No one seeks God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you don't see your peril, if you don't see the peril you're in because of your sin, then of course there is zero chance that you will do the second thing that Jesus asked this man to do, which is to sell everything and give the proceeds to the poor and follow him. It's the same thing Jesus says in Luke 14 where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, just to be clear, this is not a call to abandon our families and live under a bridge. It's a call to treasure God above even our families or our most prized possessions. We've got to be willing to let go of everything for the call of Christ. 
That's why we hold missionaries in such high regard. Because they live this out. I think of our own Jessica Gann. I had the privilege of being in the airport with her a few months ago when with tears in her eyes, she left the embrace of her family, her parents, and she boarded a plane that would take her away from everything she knew and loved for at least two years to share the good news of the gospel with a people she had never met in Japan. I actually record, here's, here's a, just a few seconds of, of what that looked like. I was a catcher from my phone. That's her mom in the foreground. How hard is this to do? Look at the words of Jesus in verse 26. With man, that's impossible. No one would do this. But with God, all things are possible. John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A few verses later in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who can willingly sacrifice everything they have to love and follow Christ? Answer, no one. It's impossible. Unless, of course, he draws you like he did the next character in our story. Listen to this from Matthew 4 and compare it to the rich young ruler. As Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were cast in a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And I love verse 20. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Pretty vivid contrast to our rich young ruler, isn't it? With God, all things are possible. And that leads to the third picture of the kingdom of heaven that we see in our text. The lead character here switches from the rich young ruler to Peter who suddenly has this light bulb moment and he blurts out, wait, see, we have left everything and followed you. So, so what will there be for us? <laughs> Charles Spurgeon wrote in his commentary on their verse, he said, always too fast, this impetuous Peter, ever ready to put in a good word for himself if he can. <laughs> I mean, you can just see the visions of grandeur starting to dance in Peter's head, Right? We see throughout the gospel, the disciples seem to be always be jockeying for, for position and what they would perceive to be this new government. Who's going to be the secretary of state? Who's going to be the chief of staff? Who, or who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? Is it going to be me, Jesus? You hear that in Peter's response. He sees it. It's coming. He's going to lay it out. Do you hear the tone? We did that. What's in it for us? A more subtle form of self-exaltation to be sure, but self-exaltation nonetheless, right? So Jesus goes right back to work. Now, 
We could get stuck into some pretty deep theological weeds in verse 28 and 29 that we don't have time to address today. But let's suffice it to say that, that Jesus answers Peter's question by listing three rewards that await them for leaving everything to follow Christ. We see in there, in those two verses, it says that they will be rulers and judges in the new kingdom. He says that whatever they sacrifice in this life will be returned to them many times over in the next. And he says they get eternal life. Now, that's not a bad swag bag, is it? I mean, to put this in the proper perspective, though, we've got to remember, we've got to look at this through the picture of redemptive history. And the whole point of redemptive history is that God is making a way to what? To get us back to Eden. To return us to before the fall. And before the fall, God put man in dominion over all creation. He ruled the earth. But more importantly, he enjoyed unhindered personal fellowship with God. Remember in Genesis 3? Where Adam and Eve, it says, they heard God walking in the cool of the day. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? Now, if you ask me, the only way they could have heard footsteps and knew it was God would be if they had heard those same footsteps before. Those being God's. That's the point here. God walked with them every day. He fellowshiped with them, literally, personally, footsteps. He says, this is going to happen again. That's what you get, Peter. But you see, there's another lesson that Jesus wants to teach here that goes back to this theme of self-exaltation and entitlement. And in short, the lesson is this. Peter... The reward for leaving everything and following me is greater than anything you can possibly imagine. But Peter, it's not just for you. It's for everyone that I will call who follows me. Not as scripture says because of who you're related to. It's not because of what you did. It's not an act of your will. It's not the act of someone else's will on you. It's by God's gracious will alone. I called, you followed because of me. So Peter, you know what you get? You get grace. You get amazing, magnificent, unmerited grace. The same spectacular grace that I'm going to give to everyone who follows me. Because you know what, Peter? There's not going to be any socioeconomic classes in heaven. And there's not going to be any celebrities. There's one celebrity in heaven. Heaven's a lot, way, a lot like the way we Texans like to, like to view our state, right? We, how we view the world. Texas and ain't Texas. Right? Rodeo season, you got to throw that in. <laughs> and of course, in heaven, it's the same way. There's God and ain't God. And all of us, including Peter, ain't God. Yes, the Bible teaches that there will be individual rewards, but those rewards will pale in comparison to the great reward. And that is that despite our sinful rebellion, God chose to pay the penalty for our sins himself. Why? So that you could have a clean record. 
so that he could adopt you as his child. He could transform you into his likeness and he could make you a citizen and a ruler in the new heaven and earth where once again, God and man would be united in unhindered fellowship. But of course, in our our self-exalting competitive natures, we can't help but want to be better than others, can we? So Jesus addresses the radical nature of the king by saying this kind of unsettling statement that the first will be last and the last will be first, which he reiterates again at the end of our text. Now, some people say, well, that's kind of confusing, but I'd say it's really not that confusing at all. It's pretty simple. I mean, think of the, think of the Olympics, which hopefully will still happen in a few months in Japan, right? Think of the, think of the, uh, the finals of the, of the 100-meter dash. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's only one possible way that the last can be first and the first could be last. And that's if, that's if the race ends in a dead heat, right? Everyone crosses the finish line at the same time. Well, now that doesn't sit well with us, does it? Why? Because let's face it, no one likes games that ends in a tie. Just like everyone hates sports leagues where there's no winners and there's no losers and, and we don't keep score because everyone is a winner in our eyes. Except, of course, that everyone keeps score and they know exactly who won. Just saying. <laughs> we want to win. We want to be better than the next guy. Why? Because of self-exaltation is in our very DNA. But God's saying, you know what? In our, in our glorified bodies in heaven, that competitive gene will be removed. And we are all going to celebrate that we are nothing but recipients of his incredible, generous grace. So as Jesus likes to do, he illustrates this with a parable that, that we read about in chapter 20. And I think as you read chapter 20, you've got to keep in mind that the point of chapter 20, this story, is he's responding to Peter's question of, what do we get? So he illustrates this concept of the first being last and the last being first through the story of a vineyard owner who needs to harvest his grapes. And we learned to hear that a, that a typical workday during that time was, was a 12-hour workday. It started from 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. So a little before 6 a.m., the vineyard owner finds a group of day laborers and he offers them a wage of a denarius. Now what we know about a denarius was it was the daily wage of a Roman soldier. So for a field worker, a migrant worker to get paid the same as a Roman soldier was unheard of. I guarantee you they were thrilled at the generosity of this vineyard owner. At least at this point. The problem occurred when three hours later, he decided to hire some more laborers. And then he did the same thing at noon and at three o'clock. And he did it one more time at five o'clock, an hour before quitting time. And then to make his point, he started by paying the five o'clock guys first. And guess what he gave them? A denarius. Now, at this point, the other workers, whoo, they got, they got visions of sugar plums dancing in their head. Because they assumed that the, the owner had decided to change the rate from a denarius per day to a denarius per hour. 
And they've already got guys like, where in the world, how we're thinking about how they're going to spend their 12 denarius. So imagine the disappointment when the three o'clock guys got a denarius, as did the 12 o'clock, the nine o'clock, and even the 6 a.m. guys. Now, instead of being grateful for the generous wage that they were offered just 12 hours ago, they were hot at the seeming injustice of the wage scale. Sounds a lot like many of our professional athletes today, doesn't it? Who are, who are thrilled with these ridiculous contracts they get until they perceive that someone who's a little less talented than them got more. And then what do they do? They get mad and refuse to play. Little commentary there. <laughs> Not that I'm bitter about it. So Jesus was both answering Peter's question and I think he was giving him a little gentle warning against self-exaltation. Because you see, this isn't a story about grapes. It's a story about grace. Peter, you were a broke fisherman, and now you're one of the closest friends of the Messiah. You get to be among the founding members of my church that one day will span a globe that you aren't even aware of yet. But more than that, Peter, I'm giving you the gift of eternal life unending fellowship with me and for all of eternity in a place that you can't even imagine its glorious splendor. But Peter, you're going to be just one of billions to whom I'm going to give this eternal reward. And in this place, there will be no competing or jealousy because everyone will be breathless at my generosity. And that, Peter, is what you get. Any questions? <laughs> so I want to close today by repeating the quote that I began with. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Self-exaltation and Christ's exaltation can't go together. <laughs> 